Well, good morning and welcome to our live stream panel discussion about biotech trends. Uh, I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, been a serial entrepreneur, and today I teach entrepreneurship at Stanford University, and I mentor startup CEOs at the Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, and I run the startup accelerator called Fourthly. And we're here to talk about biotech trends, um, and <clears throat> joining us uh, is Marguerite. Good morning, Marguerite. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Brett, for having me. So give us the brief backgrounder on yourself. Well, um, I started out my career as a lawyer working at UCSF in the tech transfer office. And um, over the last several years, I've really um, developed and expanded my skill set into sort of general biotech management. And that covers a lot of things like business development, operations, finance. Um, and over the last year, I've been working on a spin out of UCSF. Um, doing some of the, you know, first experiments to try to validate the technology with a small team and a small investment. And um, just recently came to the conclusion that the technology doesn't work. And so over the <laughs> <laughs> um, I call it a fast fail. I'm very I was going to say that's why they that's why they say fail fast. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, you don't want to waste time or money on things that don't work. So um I've just started uh, looking for my next project and, um, and just happened to hear from you and from Louie about doing this podcast, which I think coincides nicely with this sort of tour I've been doing of all my contacts in the biotech community, kind of finding out what the trends are and what I should be thinking about um, when I consider new companies to join. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, um, you know, Carol Bartz, who was uh, famously, she was CEO of uh, Autodesk for a lot of years, and she developed what she called the the fail fast forward framework, the yeah. three Fs, that not only should you fail fast, but that you should fail fast in a way that kind of pushes you forward and helps develop new innovation. Yeah. So what from this recent uh, experience you had with something that failed, what 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 do you think? launched you forward? <laughs> um, I think it was it what had to be a, a willingness to accept that conclusion mm -hmm. um, to really look at the data. And, you know, having worked with one, I come from this legal background, which is a very different training, um, you know, and mental logical skill set that you develop right. in the course right. of, you know, law school and then the bar and then looking at legal problems as an attorney mm -hmm. um, versus the sort of pedagogy that you get as a scientist. So mm -hmm. having spent so many years working with scientists, I often will listen to them talk and interpret data and see some of the gaps and the um, like sidesteps they take when they are looking at data that may be a bit inconvenient for their hypothesis. Yeah, and right. So I encounter that frequently um, in my work with scientists and try to point it out and gently push them in the right direction, or at least to acknowledge what um, may not be so easy to see. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, it was just uh, you know a willingness after doing many experiments to say, look, it's just not quite performing the way that it did mm -hmm. in the academic lab. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, I think, a step forward. So also joining us this morning is Louis Lowe. Morning, Louis. Good morning, Brett. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. So Marguerite just used the word pedagogy. I think that's a twelve. That's a twelve dollar word. Do you know? Do you know that? I I think I could even spell it, Brett. <laughs> Louis, how are you? Nice to see you, Marguerite. Thanks for joining. Mm -hmm. So uh, Louis, give us the brief background on yourself. 
Well, um, you know, as, as you both know, I'm a, a startup lawyer and I help uh, companies get formed, financed, scaled for growth, uh, bought and sold. And uh, it, it, as part of what I do, I spend a lot of time helping companies uh, find the right financing structure and the right investor to help them go from here to there. Uh, and it's an honor to be here, Brett, and, and to continue the discussion we've been having across a variety of verticals uh, and talk about one of my favorites, uh, which is biotech. And I'm so glad that Marguerite was able to make time to join us uh, and give her experiences and perspectives. So, Louis, what is biotech? Um, you know, when, when I think of biotech, I think small molecules mm. uh, that are uh, first tested in, in animal models and then uh, brought into the lab. And at some point uh, when you've brought the right team together uh, and the right hypothesis, uh, you've got some intellectual property uh, and you've got uh, a path for regulatory approval, you, you go into the clinic and you've got uh, phase one, which, which uh, tests for toxicity, um, uh, phase two, which tastes, uh, tests for dosage, and then phase three, which tests for efficacy. And, and even before you get to phase three, you have some indications uh, of, of, of what you think the molecule is going to do. Uh, but of course, uh, you, can, you can also have all of this impacted by other things that are happening in the world, Brett. And as, as you and I have talked about in the past, there's been this amazing uh, development where um, mRNA can be split and, and can analyze and reconstitute genes uh, and proteins much faster, um, which can really help accelerate um, all of uh, drug discovery and target it for the right people. So that's exciting. Um, and then finally, I would say artificial intelligence is accelerating our analysis of data uh, we had on our guest uh, on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dipana Dadas from Sorcero, who's got a platform that is for big pharma companies to analyze not only the the preclinical and, and clinical data, but also uh, the data in, in aftermarket uh, to help uh, pharma companies identify who are the right patients that they should be uh, giving the drug to. So, Marguerite, you can t you can tell that Louis bills by the hour because I asked him a simple question and he gave us a ten minute answer. Oh yeah. So, so uh, let, let me let me try the same question on you, Marguerite. What is what is biotech? Oh, biotech is um, biotech is the field of study of, of trying to understand how to use biology to solve human health issues. Nice. So we try to leverage all these different modalities, and Louis talked about a few of them to um, really understand how the body is um, overtaking, you know, sort of overstepping in its, in its uh, normal operations and, and trying to um, bring it back into homeostasis. So homeostasis, boy, Louie, she knows, she knows all the big words. I tell you, Brett, we should invite her to more of our podcast. <laughs> I need to dumb it down. I'm sorry. No. Um, you know, this, this is a, such a fascinating industry of trying to really understand human biology. I think it's um, why I stay in this business. Again, I think I mentioned I didn't train to be here, but I love it because you're always learning something new about how the universe works in, in the context of the body. So, um, and there, there are millions of people who work in it who are just extraordinarily committed to yeah. finding 
solutions and cures and treatments for people. Yeah. And when you talk to the patients, and I, I have had the opportunity to talk with a lot of patients over the course of my career and their families, it's um, it's meaningful like nothing else. Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as we said, it's a big, you know, when you say biotechnology, uh, it actually encompasses a whole bunch of different things. Uh, but what do you see going on right now that you think is uh, worth paying attention to, Marguerite? Well, um, like I mentioned, I've been talking to a lot of people right now. And so just trying to get an understanding of trends, things I should look at. And um, I think we all know that there are a lot of new cell therapy companies coming out. Cell therapy. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, cell therapy. And so mm -hmm. there are a, are a lot of people who are trying to solve like the immunogenicity of certain mm -hmm. treatments, IO treatments, um, trying to improve immunotolerance of cell therapies, other gene therapies. Um, there are people who are trying to solve manufacturing solutions with these mm -hmm. kinds of um, treatments because the turnaround time can be quite long um, and arduous and the investment required in order to manufacture them on that timeline is, um, is tremendous. So there are a lot of companies that are moving into this space, trying to solve little parts of it. And, um, you know, one question is, is it going to be really taken up? Is there going to be good market uptake in cancer or is it going to extend beyond into, um, uh, you know, other immune autoimmune diseases and things mm -hmm. like that? Obviously, we have some like orphan diseases where it's, it's really starting to make a big difference. Right. Also joining us this morning is my friend Kent. Hey, Kent. Uh-oh, you're muted. Yes, hello. Welcome. Apologies for the late start. Not a problem. Glad you're here. So, Kent, give us the brief background here on yourself. Okay, I've been starting and leading biotech companies for over 20 years now, and um, this is probably my fifth biotech company. Uh, so a couple of prior companies to this were Marcadio Biotech, acquired by Roche, MB2, acquired by Novo Nordisk, and Avidity Biosciences, uh, which is publicly traded um, on NASDAQ as RNA. And this company that I am co-founder, president, and CEO of, MBX uh, Biosciences, is a little over um, uh, four years old. And um, we are uh, transitioning between phase one and phase two in our lead program and about to undertake a phase uh, one in a second program, both in rare endocrine diseases and utilizing a platform technology, which we call precision endocrine peptides. Congratulations. And nice to meet you. I'm Marguerite. Nice to meet you. Yes. Nice to meet you, Marguerite. Sorry to barge in on the panel here late. So Marguerite apparently understood your last sentence, but I didn't. Okay. So tell us again, what your last sentence means. All right. So Simply, we are, as a company, focused on overcoming the inherent limitations of peptide, native peptide therapeutics. So when you think of peptides like hormones such as insulin, they have had a, these have had a profound um, role in uh, treating um, especially endocrine diseases for 100 years. But as medicines, they really require optimization. And so that is the central opportunity for MBX. And um, yeah, we have deep expertise on the discovery side as well as the disease area um, specialization. And I would just note that our uh, scientific founder um, 
and principal investigator and inventor. Richard DeMarkey is the inventor of Humalog, mentioning a, a, um, an insulin, um, uh, synthetic insulin, um, and uh, you, you know has been at this for, for 30, 30 plus years as a leader. So, um, and, and just to maybe double click on that, it's really a lot around the um, short half-life of peptides that require um, extended half-life. You also have narrow therapeutic um, window diseases, um, well, such as diabetes or hypoparathyroidism to use uh, our lead indication as an example. And so what, what you really want is a low peak to trough, um, convenient and frequent dosing. And so that's really, that plays to the strengths of our platform technology. So our lead program, um, our lead investigational drug, MBX2109, is uh, expected to be a once weekly uh, for the treatment of uh, hypoparathyroidism. Hope that helps. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Um, um, Daniela writes in and asks about uh, CRISPR-CAS9. I know what CRISPR is. I don't know what the CAS9 is, but either of you have any comments about that? Well, you want to go first? Um, uh, this is a new, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'll, I will um, make that disclaimer, but this is a new method of gene editing um, that was discovered at UC Berkeley by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who won the Nobel Prize for it. Um, this is being used in clinical trials. Um, I think it's sort of emergent right now, and Caribou Biosciences has been a leader in that and some of its affiliates like Intellia. Um, I, it's very promising. I think the limited data that's been made available so far is exciting. Um, obviously, there have been some ethical concerns about, you know, using it or overusing it um, preemptively, for instance, in children with genetic diseases or with um, embryos. So I think it remains to be seen. There will definitely be a place for it in the therapeutic landscape going forward. It's just a matter of when and where and who? Uh, yeah, yes, agreed. And just um, drawing on my experience in genetic medicines at Avidity, um, with many of these applications, delivery is really a key challenge. Um, you know, these technologies have been known, such as RNAi, more recently, this CRISPR-Cas9, but it's getting it to the relevant uh, cells and, and organs, tissue, and um, so I think there's uh, still a lot to be done there. I think one of the first uh, CRISPR applications was, for example, ocular, um, where you kind of had direct application um, mm -hmm. to the organ. But anyway, I think that Marguerite did a great job of framing it. I think um, another thing you mentioned, and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about now, um, Brett, a, a trend that I've been seeing mm -hmm. is this sort of selective application of gene editing with the with an interest in trying to improve the therapeutic um, index of drugs and treatments in general. So um, CRISPR, Cas9, RNA therapeutics would obviously be good candidates for that. But then I've been seeing it all over the place in different modalities and small molecules, ADCs, just a strong interest in trying to get the drug directly applied into the organ or mm -hmm. tissue of interest mm -hmm. um, so that you're not having systemic exposure. So I have um, talked with a lot of companies. I've worked on this. Um, it, it seems to be an emerging emerging trend in different biotech um, 
companies and conversations and spheres about how can we try to improve this so that we don't have as mm. much systemic toxicity. So a lot of our audience is uh, investors and uh, kind of one of the challenging things about choosing investments in this field is that the time horizons are long, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a software guy, so I'm used to the idea of, you know, we'll hire a team, we'll have an MVP out there in a couple of weeks and we'll scale it up and have a million users by the end of the month. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, biotech, you guys tend to work with a lot of long time horizons. Um, and so, you know, Kent, if you were a, if you were an investor kind of new to this, um, you know, how would you think about kind of what's going on right now or what investment opportunities are available right now that are pretty promising in terms of paying off years down the road? Okay. So just to help me understand, are you thinking about, um, sort of angel investors or, um, uh, sort of day traders or thinking of what to put in their IRA type of thing? Well, let's no, let's let's go with uh, right. Let's go with uh, small individual investors. So I got a couple million bucks. So with mm -hmm. a couple million bucks, I could get in on the seed level of some new deal. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, how would I think about that? How would I evaluate <clears throat> seed level investments in biotech companies? Or is it just pure, uh, pure random lottery, Kent? I don't think it's random lottery. I do think <laughs> if you look at the sector over time, it is um, very, very tough. If you just spread your money out over the entire field, I, um, I haven't seen these data recently, but I know it used to be pretty challenging. So it's definitely a bit of the, for want of a better term, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. A lot is in selection. Yeah. So I think you see gravitation toward um, experienced teams, um, sort of repeat investigators um, who've, who've had some success in translation. So not just a great idea, but, you know, they, they've, they've stood the test of time in the clinic and hopefully to commercialization. So, um, you know, I would just really do your homework. Um, Go in with your eyes open, though. You, you know, you have to obviously be able to walk away from the money because um, the horizons are very long. The risk is great. I mean, we are I don't know if you covered this before, um, you know, I joined, but we really are in a bit of a funding drought, um, yeah. which is now, you know, well into its second year. Um, just, you know, to be a little dramatic about it. But, um, you know, companies do get funded. I'm not saying they don't. And we just did a Series B last November. That was uh, over 100 million. But, you know, it's it's a tough environment. So um, you make a seed investment and then can the company continue to get finance to um, execute on its vision? So I think, you know, really tough. Focus on the team. Look at what that money is going to be used for. So use of proceeds and what milestone and get a sense that that's really going to drive the next stage of investment. Otherwise, you're out of business. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like any other startup invest investment. It starts with the fact that you're investing in the team. And then, Very much and, so. then, and then also that, you know, kind of the capital pipeline matters, especially in this business that, uh, you know, because you're probably going to need to raise several times over the course of several years in this business. And so uh, and you don't know what the what the macroeconomic climate is going to be like two or three years from now. And so you want to pick the teams that you think will be successful in raising 
in, in a series of rounds the amount of capital that they will need in order to get this thing to market or to get this thing to an M&A transaction. Okay, let me add an agree. Let me add another point. I mean, there's really some excellent seed stage VCs that are highly credible. And I mean, I think invest and they invest as early as it comes just with an idea on a whiteboard. So getting ahead of those sometimes seems attractive, but um, I think really, really risky. So I would also look at, you know, are they getting traction with those, you know, 5 a.m.s of the world? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, flagship, et cetera. I mean, we, we know right. the group. Right. Well, this is the advantage that big VC firms have is the, is the distribution of risk. Uh, you know, they can make a whole bunch of bets, whereas individual investors, that's harder. Marguerite, Marguerite you want to jump in on this topic? Yeah, I would, uh, a couple of points. One, really echo what Ken said about execution. Um, as I've been going around talking with folks about what's going on in the market right now, I am hearing very consistently a concern about executive teams falling down in execution mm -hmm. and kind of a reckoning. Why is this happening? Mm -hmm. Why are these um, teams of seemingly experienced CEOs, CSOs, um, COOs not able to deliver the project milestones on time? Um, and I think people are starting to look more deeply about, you know, what have they accomplished before? What, um, you know, what are their, what did they do in the past? Is, were they really operational in the past or were they investors in the past? Um, and, and some of these things I think are starting to come out as concerns amongst different investors from what I've talked, you know, from hmm. my conversations with them um, and from what I'm hearing about whether companies are meeting their milestones or not. So I, I think that the emphasis on that is um, increasing uh, as the VCs are becoming a little bit you know, more careful about where they put their money and more careful about making sure these companies meet their milestones. But I think what you also said, Kent, about maybe skipping over the seed investors, um, there may be some wisdom in that um, in a lot of cases, because the amount of money that you dedicate or that you get from those seed investors may just not be enough to get you to a meaningful milestone in many cases, or you may have to give up early. I mean, it, it can just put you into kind of a a crunch if you're if you're only you know working with six seven eight million dollars and you have a big platform technology to deliver so um i would agree if you can get yourself in front of some of the bigger vcs and get a syndicate together that would be a, a better situation for you to be in so mark writes in and asks about targeted alpha therapy is this something either of you are familiar with no is this radiotherapy I'm not I'm not familiar with the term, but okay. I have a little understanding of radiotherapy. Yeah. Um, cell targeted. Um, cell targeted. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a chemotherapy type approach mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. using ra a radio label ligand. Yeah. Those companies are starting to get funded, but um, there are some logistical challenges with that approach, too, because you need access to a radio pharmacy or nuclear pharmacy. Uh, which I think some of these companies are starting to solve, but I'm not sure if that's what the caller was. I'm not either. Yeah. So let's get back to the trends thing um, that, um, you know, we talked before biotech is a huge, huge umbrella term. Uh, and there's all kinds of interesting things going on under that uh, umbrella. But, you know, to you, Kent, what's, what's most exciting to you right now in terms of what you see going on out there? 
Well, let me address the elephant in the room, if it hasn't been raised, which is the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, IRA. And so I think we we are still seeing the ripple effect from this through boardrooms Mm -hmm. and through sort of investor decision making. Mm -hmm. Pharma is all over it, obviously. So you're seeing it in terms of their own pipeline prioritization and more relevant for smaller biotech in their partnering and M&A strategy. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, um, we have in our entire life been uh, very committed to rare disease. Um, And that happens to be uh, in our first program, though I didn't mention it has orphan drug designation. Uh, fortunately, and we got that with preclinical data even before we we started the phase one. And so, well, without having the phase one readout, I should say. So that was really fortunate because now in this um, come last fall, whatever, we're, we're seeing that's kind of a little protected, at least for a bit longer. Um, smaller molecules, so biologics, um, maybe some of the other, um, you know, gene therapies we've talked about. But it's a pretty low threshold for you know, what they consider a small molecule. And that is, um, and some peptides do, do, um, are folded in like the, um, uh, you know, like the incretins and, and obesity treatment. And those uh, would be subject, um, if they're not, you know, if they don't have the orphan drug designation waiver to, um, or protection, if you will, uh, to, you know, it's subject to, to price negotiation, which is concerning to, some pharma. And I like to think in biotech, you know, even though we're building, you know, our vision is to build a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company, we think of pharma as the ultimate customer. I mean, I think you, you sort of have to make that assumption on some level and mm-hmm. pay real close attention to what they are, how they are seeing the world. I know our investors do. So on the topic of the uh, the IRA, um, Ezra Klein had a great podcast last week where he talked about, um, you know, there's all, suddenly all this money available for these projects that are kind of transformative projects. Uh, but the permitting and approval processes are still so onerous that, you know, just providing funding doesn't mean that they'll see the light of day in less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, it gives an interesting discussion about how, uh, you know, in addition to providing the funding, there also should be some um, some easement of the, the permitting and approval processes um, that are required for some of these projects. So anyway, if you, if you missed that podcast episode, I recommend it as reclined. Mm-hmm. Marguerite, you want to jump in on the topic of what's going on that's worth paying attention to? Um. Well, I think there is uh, quite a lot of interest in the degrader space. I think degrader, degrader, yeah. So drugs that are looking to degrade proteins rather than inhibit them. Um, I think people have been looking at the recent, you know, clinical successes at Nurex and Arvinus, and wondering what's next. Who's going to move into this space to kind of take it to the next level with um, maybe higher value targets? Um, into different areas of the body, more specific, uh, more specificity for tissues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I've been hearing a lot about from different investors. Like they're excited to see what happens across all these different companies that are moving into various degrader platforms. Interesting. Interesting. So Prem writes in and asks about something called the Innovative Genomics Institute. Berkeley, either of you familiar with this? No, but I think okay. I, I did catch a headline about this, but I don't know much about it. All right. It. All right. Well, our, 
our audience is providing all kinds of uh, yeah. questions that are stumping the panel today. <laughs> um, Louis, you have been uncharacteristically quiet. I'm sure you have well, things you're dying to ask. After my 10-minute definition of biotech, I thought I needed <laughs> to maybe eat a taco, Brett. Um, but, you know, you typically ask me about, you know, the financing markets. And so maybe I'll just jump in with a few comments there. Yeah. And I'd say that for the past two years, we've seen a, a really challenging uh, environment in the public capital markets. And what's yeah. different about biotech fundraising than tech fundraising, Brett, is that um, fundraising in the public markets or going IPO is really just an extension of the venture capital process sure. uh, where you have sophisticated um, mutual funds uh, who are public investors who invest in you know this this asset class you know well well before it has proven technology you know when it's just in the clinic um, and so the when the public markets go south on the sector um, it really impacts uh, valuations as well as people's appetites uh, to invest in earlier stages so I think seed has been really challenged um, and in each stage of biotech has been challenged because on the one hand, um, investors are not seeing the returns and, and uh, companies don't want to sell equity at, at the at the low prices that uh, would clear the market in order to get a transaction done. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing a lot of transactions getting done uh, where you have repeat founders who have built uh, a, a really great team who've got built an advisory board of preeminent uh, doctors uh, in the space uh, that where, where there is a clear market application. Um, I think there's a desire to invest in a platform rather than a molecule, meaning uh, that something that's going to have uh, be able to generate multiple uh, pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's a, a requirement to have you know various different types of asset classes come in into your capital stack. So mm -hmm. not only are you going to have a venture capital form, but you may have uh, an, an endowment, you know, like the Pancreatic Cancer Foundation, PanCan, is a is a very important investor in that space. Uh, and, and so there, there's one. You have Big Pharma itself has has large corporate venturing groups uh, who will invest in in uh, companies from an early stage. Um, and, and so if you can stitch together that team of investors, uh, you know, management, and obviously, you know, on top of an idea that has a big uh, potential application, that's where the home runs are. And and we're still seeing those happen, Brett, um, like we do in every market. And and we know in a down market is is when the, the, the most exciting opportunities happen uh, with the greatest returns. And so um, I continue to be really excited about about the space. A lot of great companies have been born during down markets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and just just tying together uh, some of the threads from each of you. Um, so, uh, Kent and Lou, you both you both talked about the importance of investing in a uh, in a proven proven team that has done this before. Uh, and Marguerite, you mentioned that you're kind of hearing on the street investors uh, complaining about some teams that are not executing. Um, and these things probably tie together, right? And that those may have been startups that were invested during the capital market environment of three or four years ago where people were throwing money at everything. Um, so I think probably all those things tie together that uh, well, lots and lo lots and lots of investment opportunity uh, and that the chances of success are much higher with a proven team. Yeah. I, I also wonder whether 
it's a result of early buyouts of companies because you know if if you sell your company fairly early in the game um you know and you're operating you're doing what you know whatever your your position is in that small startup but you don't get very far in the um far into clinical trials you're not actually going to get the learnings of what it's like to kind of suffer through a three plus three dose escalation and waiting for you know the teaes to come out and waiting for the dose escalation calls and you know all of that struggle that can take years to get through a dose escalation to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel that is a proving ground for operators and if companies over the last 10 years have been selling to pharma or licensing fairly early then your, your operators in those small companies aren't getting that experience. And so I kind of wonder whether there is, you know, maybe a lack of, of personnel available who have really seen every aspect of the process. Um, and then you combine that with folks coming out of pharma who, you know, work in tremendously resourced environments, but also siloed. Um, they may not have like the, the through line to the next mm -hmm. step if they're mm -hmm. only working on one part and if they're highly specialized. So, um, I, you know, I think it's a maybe a, a mix of all of those factors that's sort of coming together. And what I'm hearing, lots of companies are falling down in execution mm -hmm. um, and that there isn't a lot of guidance for some of the junior scientists to draw on um, from those, from the leadership positions. So I, I'm just curious about where it's coming from, yeah. you know. Interesting. But I'm also seeing, and I wonder whether this is related, um, a lot of a lot of female-led teams, a lot of new female CEOs coming on board, and teams with female CEO, COO, multiple, you know, women on the executive team. So I'm excited about that as a woman, of course, but also because it points to a different direction of leadership within mm -hmm. these companies mm -hmm. um yeah maybe more intentional because women have had to be more intentional about how they show up in the workplace yep well i've got i've got five daughters so i'm all ah. about, i'm all about the girl power good so uh this is a great conversation and we could uh we could go on for a long time but um but we need to wrap it up so i'd like to ask you guys a question which is if I gave you 10 million bucks to invest somewhere in the biotech field right now, uh, where would you put it? And Kent, you're not allowed to invest it in your own company. Where would you, where would you put 10 million bucks right now, Kent? Okay, well, a sector that I really believe in, um, which is not rare endocrine disease, is uh, in the broader endocrine field of um, obesity management and I just continue to see um, unmet need there and having returned from the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions and, you know, seeing some of the exciting data presented that, you know, the world did through the mainstream press. It, it's just it's a paradigm shift. And um, so I think there's still a lot of upside there and, um, you know, excited to see how that will help um, the populace, yeah. Yeah. which is, yeah. uh, you know, in need of it. I just recently read a study that said that um, uh, fast food now kills more people every year than cigarettes. <laughs> so uh, obesity and kind of the results of dietary choices are definitely uh, definitely an issue. Marguerite, 10 million bucks, where are you going to put it? Um, something in immunology. Immunology. Yeah, yeah. I think 
you know, I've been talking to lots of people and um, I've worked in oncology my whole career and everybody says investors are chasing past returns on that front, uh -huh. which, you know, may or may not be true, but it, you know, there certainly is a lot of investment in that space. Um, but immunology, it's interesting. I mean, these patients live a long time. And so you get a lot of opportunities to try new treatments for them. Mm -hmm. And if something doesn't work, they can move on to the next one. And hopefully they're going to live a normal lifespan. So, um, you know, you have many, many more months and cycles for potential return on investment um, just by virtue of treating those patients. So um, that, that might be where I... Immunology. Right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. All right, Louie, you got any final thoughts? This has been a great conversation, don't you think, Louie? I do, I do. I'm going to answer your question, though, because I, okay. I, I invest for love or I invest for money. Yeah. Uh, and investing for love, uh, you know, my wife's had breast cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. My mother passed from pancreatic cancer. My father has prostate cancer. So mm -hmm. uh, it seems like the more I learn about these cancers, the more they're proliferating and, and the more there are solutions out there that can change, you know, the, the course of, of human life. And so I'd go there. Um, investing for money, I would do it with a team of people that I know and trust. And uh, they are the scientists and I would follow their direction as to the where. Uh, but I think for successful company building and investing, you need a rock star team. And I'm just one leg of the stool uh, as the legal side of that. Uh, but I'm really excited to see Marguerite, a recovering lawyer, uh, become an entrepreneur and, and to meet you, Kent. And Brett, thank you again, as always, for putting these great conversations together. You bet. Yeah. It's a good conversation. Thanks, you guys. Thank you so much.